Hey, everybody. Absolutely fantastic show with LEO Trades. We discuss mostly the housing market and the impacts that a massive correction in the housing market could have on other markets like crypto, like stocks, like NFTs, uh, and just the general psyche of the American consumer and the Federal Reserve on what an effect the housing market crashing could really have. So we talk about interest rates. We talk about quantitative easing, you know, money printing uh, and everything in between. As usual, Elliot is incredibly knowledgeable across top. Topics, uh, and we have some members of the audience come on and make some contributions, including people that work in the mortgage business. So overall, it's a fantastic show. Hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon to all of my East Coasters. Good morning to my West Coasters. This is the Web3 show with Elio Trades. Day four, looking like we'll probably be doing this show Monday through Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time each and every week. We love the new time slot, love the new concept. Uh, we think it's an absolute jam. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Nifty Nick. We've had a hell of a morning uh, so far, needless to say, for those of you West Coasters that are just waking up or just opening Twitter for the first time. I mean, look, it's been an eventful 12 hours, quite frankly. We've seen the return of Beanie for all you uh, NFT folks out there uh, that maybe are familiar with him. Uh, very controversial figure in the NFT space. He made a big time appear appearance uh, last night. On Shill and Villain's show, it's an entertaining listen. It's a great, it's a great show, honestly, from beginning to end. So you should totally check it out. Uh, and unexpectedly, I thought that we were going to be, uh, you know, talking about that show this morning on our morning show. But it turns out that Beanie actually joined our show. And so we got uh, the, the villain of the space, uh, Beanie, the true villain of the space, if you will, the, one of the most controversial figures, if not the most controversial figure, and he joined our show. And, and so if I'm going to be honest, it's, it's been 90 minutes. My body's still coming down from the experience because when you have something like that, a lot comes with it. A lot of people are tweeting at us. A lot of people are saying positive things. A lot of people are saying negative things. A lot of people are randomly making accusations. There's a lot going on with all that. Nick, how are you feeling after? After this morning i'm feeling all right beanie sent me a message i haven't responded yet um i i'm i'll be sure to let him know uh my thoughts but uh yeah i'm feeling uh i'm feeling good about it i, I thought it was a good show <laughs> um we didn't get to go into the weather report uh, as a result of it so we didn't discuss it literally was a beanie show like i, I didn't expect <laughs> the entire show all hour and a half like i was like oh great beanie's on here We'll chat with him for 20 minutes, but it became basically an interrogation um, and whether or not that was fair. I feel like it's, it's uh, debatable. You know what I, <laughs> excuse me, um, I still have uh, remnants of COVID here. Uh, in terms of uh, like fair and balanced, uh, as Fox News would call it, <laughs> it what, I was thinking about, I was like, what was was that unfair in the approach? And and the answer I keep coming up with is no, because from the perspective that I view it is um, you have to like your job is not to just have the conversation that you personally want to have. It's the, to ask the questions that you think people want to hear the answers to. And so that's kind of how that uh, played out. Um, and I think we did a good job with it. I thought it was pretty uh, balanced, and we heard the two 
competing perspectives. One, Beanie's a serial rugger. He's a piece of shit that doesn't deserve to be in the space. <laughs> and then the second perspective, which is that guy was the fall guy for a lot of these different projects uh, unwittingly. Um, and so I, I feel like the truth is somewhere um, is somewhere on that spectrum. We also learned. Uh, we also learned that Nifty Nick is ex KGB and uh, <laughs> and has the interrogation uh, capabilities that rival most, you know, highly trained operatives. Um, I don't think I've seen that side of you, uh, obviously, but that was that was amazing. Can you tell me a little bit about that performance, Nick, and and sort of like what possessed you to literally destroy this man to his core? I will say that I I never. I'm a part of these dramatic spaces. I'm like, you know, and, and I kind of like that, but I was, I was so excited to hear all this go down. I, that was, that was exhilarating. This, <laughs> in terms of that uh, approach, the bigger thing is the absurdity and the privilege that I think, and just having that perspective, right? Like when you're able to make millions of dollars in a space, it, there's all, there's going to be a lot of, um, tension and conflict and other things because, there's people rushing in and making money. Beanie was early to that and a catalyst as well uh, early on. But can you imagine being um, someone – I mean we're already in a privileged position ourselves um, where in the sense that like both in addition to buying NFTs at the right time and making uh, a sizable amount off of that, we also were have had the privilege of – raising a small amount of capital from investors and uh, generating revenue from this ecosystem uh, through sponsorships. And so, so I don't know, I feel like you just have to remind yourself of that on a regular basis. And in this case, the thing that really triggered me was uh, some of the comments that he was saying as though basically there's nothing you can do once a token goes to zero. And to me, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And uh, what was also interesting historically uh, about and blue, you know, blue is not the entirety of what Beanie contributed to uh, the ecosystem. And, and it's hard to say, hey, you should be judged for the two tweets that you wrote. Um, we had a president. I'm not sure if you're aware that had controversial tweets, but uh, he, you know, he had two controversial tweets associated with that one individual project. And so it, it, it may be a little bit aggressive to view all of history through that lens. But I think what's, uh, what's also hasn't, he hasn't had to speak on and is always frustrating for me as a listener when I listen to other spaces is that uh, oftentimes the interviewer will make it about themselves rather than uh, about the fact that like, hey, there's all these people who have actually been impacted by this person and or have not had the privilege that this person had here's what they would think and how they would operate in those shoes. So I think that that's kind of where that was coming from was just more of like, yo dude, like you made all this money and you don't feel any sense of responsibility for that. Like I, that, that's, that's a bigger issue, which is way more than two tweets. It's, it's more about your character at that point in time. Well, it struck a chord with Nick. Elliot, have you ever, have you had like drama like that? I know you said that you avoid it, but I'd imagine somebody with an audience, you know, size that you have, you probably run into something, right? Yeah, obviously, you know, uh, one of the big things I think was, uh, was the big thing for me was Beanie's personality 
um, which was his, you know, part of what his his effect was on the market, um, had this, you know, he had a bit of a, a, a toxic effect, but he had this also ego that people loved. And there was this kind of like Beanie doesn't miss kind of sense, like, like, I remember seeing that in the chats and people would always say that like Beanie doesn't miss. And, um, and so, and he cultivated this sort of larger than life, um, sense of control on the market, which, you know, it, it cuts both ways. Um, and I think like being, you know, trying to be very like transparent about what your capabilities are as a person, um, and, and the way you do things is, is highly impactful. Right. And, and so if you're like, Hey, like I have, you know, th this stuff could backfire. I don't know. Like, but I'm, but here's why I like this. It's different than being like, this is the future. Everything else is trash. Um, and it's just sort of like, you know, I don't like discussing Beanie when he's not here. I don't think it's fair because he could, he could, you know, make some points back. I think Nifty Nick did a great job of sort of putting his feet to the fire while he was on the stage. So I don't want to like do like the, the, the peanut gallery where there's no response and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think the way you do things is highly impactful. And if you cultivate a sense that like everyone else is wrong, you're the only one with the answers. Um, that is like, you're, you're on a knife's edge, but if you're very transparent and you're like, Hey, look, like I don't, I don't really know necessarily, but here's why I think this is good. Um, I think that that's like a different way to go about it, which has kind of been always the way I try to approach my content is like, Hey, here's like a, like a bunch of probabilities. And here's why I am like leaning towards this, by the way, this could totally backfire. Um, you know, those it, it's easier to do that also in a long form video than like in a tweet. I, you just perfectly summarized, I think, the situation there is that it's about how you present yourself as a character. And if, you, if you're the person that has all the answers, well, then when, when you fuck up, people are going to hold you accountable for that. Like, that's just the bottom line. Whereas if you can provide a, a, a diverse perspectives and if you can just have a regular conversation, um, then, it, then it's... Uh, uh, there's more flexibility that you're granted, I think, in those scenarios. And, and that, that was kind of what happened. So yeah, I, I think that's a good synopsis. Yeah, I think the biggest uh, bit of info that we got from it was that he's a seed investor in Blur, which is still, that's pretty gnarly to me because Blur is getting a lot of attention right now and is obviously, uh, seems to be a very legitimate platform. The other thing that for some, like it just is hitting me now, like, you know, about 105 minutes after the show concluded, Nick, uh, is what if we had had a sponsor on this morning show like they would have been like what the fuck even is this show right now so it was luck of the draw that uh the day beanie decided to to make his big return uh we didn't have any sponsors booked because that would have been an experience and a half uh for whatever sponsor <laughs> decided to I mean, join that show uh, oh, man like and how would you made that transition anyways yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was wondering about that, and then I was like, wow, that's perfect. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It is uh, – I mean, it, it's hilarious. I mean, we're in – it's indicative of the broader broader market cycle that we're in of it being a bear that, like, this is sort of uh, – the the return of Beanie is the, uh, is the subject of conversation – as a total aside, well, not total aside, but tangentially related, as you brought up Blur, A, did you get your airdrop? And then B, um, as it applies to that airdrop, w w is there any way to derive value from what these things are? Or like, Oh my gonna God. <laughs> I was going to laugh because you said Beanie was the investor. And then I was like, did he come up with the quote airdrop that actually isn't, 
an NFT or tokens or any cons- like or any like indication of what these digital centralized items will become because that is genius. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he had a hand in it. So real quick, let, we'll dive into that. Nucci is knowledgeable on Blur. We have Signal on stage. Signal didn't get to do the weather report this morning, and I know Signal's going to have to jump in five minutes. Sig, would you want to run through the weather report, give us a little Web3 rundown, um, and maybe it can inform our conversation. Then we can dive into Blur and weather. Yeah, yeah perfect. Yeah, yeah, sure thing, sure thing. I did, I did write this some hours ago, so it might not exactly be up to date, but let's run with it. So GMGM, everyone, it is Thursday the 20th of October. OpenSea volume is at 9.7 million. So we are still pretty flat here, going back up to those uh, double digit numbers, which is a good sign. On the leaders, pretty much not much change. Um, All of the collections are stable. Apes are still at 76. So over the past 24 hours, uh, earlier today at least, Dodor was leading the OpenSea ranks. And the whole question is, you have a collection which is number one um, on OpenSea and everyone is basically saying it's a scam. Um, Most of the community have never heard of it talked about it it's gone from 0.05 eth to 2 eth in less than one week it is a thousand supply collection which was released by unlimited dimension and the founders have kept their identities hidden bar only their first name so if you look at their twitter account it's like over a hundred thousand people but with very low engagement and uh if you follow the right people on twitter you'll probably see that they that, that account you don't have any followers in common so um lots of chat about that project because it was number one on OpenSea. secondly wrecked guy by osf um he is back in the top 20 on OpenSea after a ghost wallet which had been dormant for five years until now came in and so another 30 ETH of the NFT, including a few rares. Their team is trying to find out who this mystery wallet uh, belongs to and the floor on Wrecked is up to 0.5 ETH. uh, Infamous Limited, this was a low mint. It was one of the best plays of yesterday, had over 5,000 sales on secondary with 250 ETH in trading volume. You're looking at a collection of agents and the team is using the mystery game to keep um, interest and attention. And the floor on that is 0.07 and people believe that will be more to come there. And then lastly, what we've been talking about, Blur, airdrop season is upon us. We've got those care packages, which uh, have been, uh, which are able to be claimed. You've got your mix of your uncommon, your rare and your legendary. All of this is based off your wallet activity across different platforms. Uh, The care packages, you need to claim them within 14 days. And there is another airdrop happening in November. If you use the platform and read the rules about how they're going to incentivize you to be more loyal, pay royalties, and therefore get more tokens in January. On to crypto, it's ranging. Elio can cover this in more detail. But overall, with crypto ranging, volume steady, the biggest news right now, aside from Beanie, is Blur's airdrop. It will be interesting to watch if OpenSea over the next uh, three months until the end of the year, what happens to their um, their uh, the, the, the share of their trading volume. So I was going to say, for now, thanks to Blur, thanks to Beanie, the 24-hour forecast is potential cash showers coming in January. Back to you folks. Fantastic weather report. Potential cash showers coming in January. I mean, Nick's got his hand raised and Nucci. Um, and obviously, I always want to hear what Elliot has to say, but we should talk Blur. Nick, you yeah, raise yeah. your hand about Blur. It's, it's actually Blur related. I noticed our NFT isn't on there. Is there like a limited subset of NFTs that are currently available on their marketplace? How does that work? I, I don't know. Is Imposters on there, Elliot? 
Uh, I um, I see embusters on there, yeah. Oh, look at that, Nick. So this may be due to the bug in our contract where the name is not uh, visible in the contract, and so uh, they they don't have it indexed, which would would suck. Or ERC eleven fifty five. Nucci, you have your hand raised. Some uh, some blur info. Yeah, as it pertains to to blur and beanie, my understanding is they took money from a lot of. Uh, people and influencers in the space. And I think there was, I, I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is they are VC backed, but then the token allocate, like you could have bought tokens. I think it was like 10 or $20,000 worth. And those took a few years to vest or something like that. Um, my big question on Blur is like, th these guys are definitely growth hackers, right? They did it with that. I don't know if you remember the leaderboard like a few months ago um, when that was like raging around Twitter. Um, they clearly know how to like incentivize the behaviors they want. Like right now it's listing. They're like, if you list, you'll get this token we're doing in January and they need listings to make this thing work. And they're really smart guys. My question is like, will the token actually accrue value, right? Historically, these things go to zero and everyone dumps them or they might hold value for a little while. Um, I think it's a really cool platform. It's, it's got some things left to be desired still. Um, I, I find like I'm using it in tandem with nerds or OpenSea just so I can get a broader perspective because it's still missing a few things. But it's really nice. The team's really smart. My question is like, is this token is this just another token that's gonna go to zero? Because that tends to be in like my experience what ninety nine percent of these things do. It's a good question. Uh Elliot, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well obviously um, you know, they're backed by Paradigm, which are considered like of the top, most elite investors in the space, given the founders' reputations. Um, so, you know, you'd expect, um, I actually met with the Paradigm team um, and they were interested in investing in, uh, you know, we have a full disclosure, uh, we have a marketplace coming out imminently. Um, and so, you know, consider me a very biased competitor to Blur. Um, and so the reality is, is that, uh, you know, I see things that I liked in what they did, um, things that, um, made me chuckle and things that I could poke holes in, but, you know, given my extreme bias, I feel like it's kind of unfair for me to just rant about it. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, using a token as the driver of usage in this climate is definitely a a very vulnerable place to be because the tokens are very unlikely to perform in this market, no matter, you know, you could have, you know, a whole bunch of meta Facebook employees launching the next best L1. Not that we have any examples of that. Um, and the token will probably dump to infinity, right? And so that's the thing is like this market is just not friendly for even the most exciting of token assets especially when we have no information on the token um, and how it accrues value. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely a, a, an interesting sort of tactic there. Um, and some of the people behind the scenes messaged me like surprised, very surprised that they went the token route um, instead of um, just kind of expecting people to kind of want to gravitate towards the product and features. It is always interesting when there's a token attached. Also, somebody clarified ERC-1155s are not available on Blur just yet. And yeah, I mean, you know, you, looks rare is the previous marketplace example that we have that had a token. And people really, uh, you know, s like applauded the mechanics that looks rare had at first where you got a bonus for listing a top five project, right? Like the amount of time that it was listed, you would accrue tokens. You got a bonus for buying on looks rare. You got a bonus for selling on looks rare. And people really liked that. But ultimately, uh, it did end up 
you know, not having a long-term value accrual scheme, it seems. The other thing is that all like with looks rare, wasn't there like a liquidity event for the people that invested in looks rare? And it was only like six months or something like they, they like, since when do you get a liquidity event as like a seed round investor in like less than one year? Right. So I don't know. I always felt a little bit strange about that. And a lot of times where there's uh, anonymity surrounding the people that are involved with the project, I raise an eyebrow. Uh, but moving on, just looking at the the overall climate, you know, but speaking of Beanie, Elliot, one thing that I asked Beanie is, wh- when do you think, you know, we see more action in the crypto market? I asked him if he thinks that the macro environment is going to uh, influence the crypto cycles in a big way. And he said, you know, he already thinks that that's happening, which I think makes sense. And he also said that he thinks 2025 is the next bull run. Like, so I know your opinion on this as well. What do you think about that thesis? And what do you think about, you know, what we could potentially expect here? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a soundboard so I could make uh, like a like a nice alarm sound for the macro roundup segment. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about what it feels like right now. Um, so, you know, one of the big things is, first of all, um, you know, you'd have to be without any of your five senses, maybe six senses to, to not perceive that macro is having an effect on crypto right now. Um, that is exactly what we're in. And that's what I've been talking about on my channel now. Really, I started doing content in the, on this in, in January with people like Darius Dale, uh, which if you go back and you watch that interview, it, it's pretty much a playbook of, of what happened throughout the year. Um, and Pretty much, let me just go through this, right? Um, we have Liz Truss, uh, the UK Prime Minister, uh, resigns, right? Which is now apparently the fourth uh, Prime Minister now since 2019 that they'll have in England. And this is all because of economic turmoil uh, due to her proposed policies. Um, we have, you know, what's what's the other big headline news? Oh, yeah, average 30-year mortgage rate just hit 7.22%, which is a 22-year high. Uh, we have one of my favorite accounts, one of the littler known accounts, uh, Inarte de Carlos, uh, Carlo Das, uh, which is Carlo Casio here. Um, and he says, essentially, uh, we have uh, we have a housing recession, which is the main thing we should be focusing on. Now, when housing comes down, it's something called the wealth effect, where the majority of people perceive their wealth through the value of their house. And when the values drop of the house, people perceive themselves as less wealthy. They stop spending. That impacts earnings in the stock market. And you get this sort of like, you know, this downward spiral of stocks. So um, so that's kind of like one of the biggest things here. And then we have, you know, more reports that there's been a huge lack of progress on inflation despite all these all these policies um, and so uh, apparently you know all these things together form something pretty bearish obviously crypto you know fits firmly into the bucket of risk assets because as people here's why last year when or two years ago when they started dumping money into the economy uh, to stave off the covid uh, pandemic well what happened is all of these macro funds all of these huge hedge funds started trading crypto as if it was a higher beta nasdaq and you ended up with a ton of institutional money who was who were being given free money just pumping it in as if it was like the riskier side of the stock market and so that is still an unwind that's happening um, but then there's the narrative that you know a lot of these funds have sort of sold out or are, are they are already unwinding and that you have these sort of core um, long-term minded buyers in crypto that will eventually kind of come in and change that. That's the hope. Um, but for now, you know, we, we just got to watch it. You know, we got to just keep a, keep a close watch and understand that if the entire financial system starts getting hit with some serious blows and, you know, some of these unwinds are really still 
still is just in process, uh, then that's where we need to understand that there's just a, a, a tremendous amount of risk on the macro side. Still, it's what I've been screaming about. And I had a tweet yesterday that, you know, markets love to punish people. They love to punish the maximum amount of people because that's where you get these dramatic moves. Uh, you guys are familiar with longing and shorting and leverage. The markets love leverage. They love longing, shorting. They love gambling. And when too many people think something's going to happen, there's a lot of money to be made in going the other way. And so what I'll say is that in this scenario, the biggest weakness of all modern investors is patience. And patience is the one thing that everyone lacks because everything's been in such, such like fast forward mode in crypto and stocks, Wall Street bets, you know, all of these, you know, tech stocks erupting um, and understanding that like patience and the lack thereof is what's going to kill most modern portfolios. I mean, I love, I, I haven't heard somebody talk about the housing market like that, about how when you see that big correction in the housing market, how it impacts the psyche of homeowners. Because like you said, Elliot, the most valuable asset, you know, the biggest percentage of most homeowners net worth is their home. And we haven't seen this in the past, I don't even know how many years, right? I guess since 09, right? Since the housing crisis of 09, um, which obviously led to the Great Recession. And even during the COVID crash, the COVID crash was so quick, it didn't, it, it didn't have time to affect the housing market. And like you said, they just started pumping money into the system. So we got that speedy recovery. And then we saw the bull run on all risk assets, including like, you know, risky tech stocks, NFTs, crypto. I mean, think about the bubble that we were just in that all the liquidity got sucked out of like a vacuum. So I love the way that you're thinking about that. And I think that a lot of people have been saying that we're due for a big correction in the housing market. And I just hadn't thought about that, that psyche effect that it would have. Also, what you said about the, the people lacking patience, uh, it's so clear that people lack patience. People want things now, now, now. And when you see these big flushes in the crypto markets, you literally see participants leave. They run for the hills rather than sticking around and trying to navigate and see if they can actually use this new opportunity to their benefit. They actually exit. So I love the way that you frame that, Elliot. Um, I let Ben Jammin, you know, our guy, our pal, a uh, friend of our morning show, um, you know, just our, our homie on stage. Uh, ben, something to add here? GMPO. Uh, sorry, I missed the show this morning. I heard it was a banger. But uh, yeah, man, I, I was just want to comment a little bit on, on what Elliot was talking about with the houses. And, um, you know, I, I just went through this experience myself over the past you know, like six months or so trying to buy a house while the rates are increasing. And it, it was just really such a shit show. We actually um, went into contract for a house. And in the time that we were um, planning to put the down payment on and, and finalize the contract, the rates went up another 2%, which is like basically a, another full part-time job in interest. So it, it was definitely really a, a daunting experience. So right now we're currently just still renting until the market cools off a little bit. But one of the, one of the things that I saw um, from a, uh, an analytical perspective about housing is that people are not even um, upgrading or downgrading the houses that they're in because if you got in at you know 2% or something like that, even if you have enough money to upgrade to a new house, you're going to have to pay another, you know, four to five percent just in interest to even get into it, you know, an upgrade. And if you don't have enough money to really continue paying your mortgage, you're actually um, you're actually in a worse position trying to downgrade into a smaller house just because 
the rates that you'll get will be up so much that the mortgage payment will be higher than if you stay in the house that you're currently at. So, you know, seeing all of this, you know, it, it's just such a, a bearish indicator for the market. And with rates as high as they are and housing basically at all time highs, there's there's just no room for starter houses for people who are graduating college or getting new jobs. So I, I would expect that, you know, young adults the, the is at the highest percentage of people living with their, their families or with other, you know, pe peers essentially than we, we've seen in, in, you know, decades. And so it's, it's really, it's an interesting time to be in, especially after we were just in a bubble that really hasn't even popped yet. So yeah, it, it's it's just I would just wanted to pro provide a little bit of commentary from someone who is you know I involved um, pretty intently in in looking for houses and in multiple states throughout the country. So it's not just like a New York Northeastern problem. Exactly. So and real quick, Nick, you also are competing against institu institutions like BlackRock that were literally buying single family homes. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, I saw something the other day and it made a ton of sense to me, which was. Um, some of the more some of the people that are selling their place rather than having to reduce the value there's some houses that you actually can um transfer uh the mortgage and so you can uh you can sorry you could hear my food my apologies nick's um, chowing down the the uh your boy needed a snack okay i need a little bit of peanut butter a little bit um, of bagels with locks no there's no <laughs> bagels going on here um uh, just peanut butter. So uh, in terms of uh, – uh, I, I heard that you could transfer the mortgage actually, which is an interesting approach. So if you have like a 2% or 3% interest mortgage, uh, that could actually make your ha your home more valuable by basically going and saying, look, rather than you going and getting a mortgage, you can transfer this over to yourself and then you can retain that rate. And there, there's some other creative financing that you can use uh, in order to fund the the difference. Um, that that uh, person would have received. So now you only need to get a mortgage for. Um, I, I I forget the whole the the whole approach, but I, I heard that and I was like, man, that makes a ton of sense uh, because otherwise none of the math adds up basically, and the rates the, the the pace at which the rates have gone up, the prices have not yet adjusted, um, and I think ultimately or inevitably uh, both the prices are going to have to come down. And uh, some of the people who are selling are going to have to make the hard decision of being like, well, we're stuck with this uh, for the next uh, few years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something to point out for sure. Uh, so we got Tipsy Host on stage. Do you have a question for Elliot or something to add here? Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, yeah, just uh, I'm a mortgage professional. So, Ben, sorry to hear you're I, I've seen it. I see it with a lot of my clients here in the Carolinas. Um, rates suck. So yeah, two, two points in a couple months is completely feasible. Um, Nick, what you're talking about is a uh, assumable mortgage. Um, there so you go. Some... Yeah. Assumable mortgages. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, come to me for the mortgage questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I'm, I, I might not know coding, but I know mortgages inside and out. Um, but just to, just to touch base, I think on what Ben was saying, you know, he's right. Like a refi doesn't make sense right now, but, uh, I think it's a good opportunity for people that already own homes that have equity to start getting what we call like a HELOC, which is a home equity line of credit, which you can just open up. I mean, you need, you know, okay credit and stuff for that, but you can use that to purchase another home. And like Elliot saying, homes are going to be taking a dip. I don't think they're going to crash. 
like to, you know, where people are upside down on loans. Um, but I think it's a good opportunity to start getting a HELOC. And then next year when home prices start coming down and, and the Fed, you know, what they're trying to do is slow. I mean, consumer, the, the consumer index right now, I mean, sentiment is, is really high. Like people, people still have way too much money in their pockets. Um, and the Fed's going to keep going, you know, keep going up with the rates. By Thanksgiving, we're going to be at least at an eight. By the end of the year, we're going to be at double digits. That's, that's what, just my opinion. With, with the home equity line of credit, and I, this is really relevant to an NFT show, um, but uh, with, with that uh, approach, do you get to use the interest rate on your pre-existing mortgage? No, you don't. It would, it would oh, be okay. an, most of them are adjustable, um, but you don't, get, you, don't get, uh, you don't pay interest if you don't use it. So if you have a line of credit for, let's say, $100,000, you have that if your roof caves in and you need an emergency fund, you, you have that, right? Or let's say if home, you have that line of credit for $100,000, it depends on the rate that the, that the Fed has out. Yeah. And then next year, the prices are down, the Fed has more, you know, better rates, and then you have $100,000 to go into a home, a second home or an investment property. Tipsy, what I hear from that is we have a new source of funding for buying NFTs. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> just don't just don't tell the underwriters that. <laughs> uh, Elliot, any comment on, on that, or uh, you know something that you're you're looking to discuss right now? Otherwise, I'll throw to to Tams or to Fade in. Yeah, I mean the bull case here uh, is that you know either the world's going to end or they're going to pump the shit out of our bags. So what's the difference? You might as well ape in. Um, I'm kidding, everyone. Just I'm really kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, NFA, uh, NFA. No, but like you know, there's an element here of they will eventually go back to the heroin that is printing money to solve some problems here. Um, the Fed is going to be the last one to do it because in the end, it's a game of if everyone else's currencies are going you know, into the abyss, then it's okay because we still have the strongest bad money in, on the planet. And guess what? You know, People do not, you know, shocker, people do not treat or think of Bitcoin and crypto as they do fiat currency yet in mass, the, the eight plus billion people that form the majority of the earth. So pretty much what it's going to be a, a game of is waiting for like, you know, the US dollar to be the last one standing such that they can print for another 10 years and still remain dominant. And uh, and I believe that that situation is, is setting itself up. You see the euro diving, you see every other currency diving. I mean, let's not even talk about Japan's currency. Um, and yeah, they'll, they'll go back and they'll start relieving the situation eventually. But they need, a, they need to show some progress on inflation and they need to show some progress um, on housing prices and, and the job market, which, which they are going to do. Um, but, you know, the, the painful part is not what we've been. I know, it, I know for us investors in these markets, we feel the pain. But, you know, the average person is just starting to feel the pain on, you know, in their everyday lives. And so that's the part that's uh, the story that that we're about to see unfold. And again, patience. Uh, if, if this takes, you know, the boogeyman scenario is that this takes several years to work itself out. I remember you said earlier, Nick or P.O., uh, 2025 was Beanie's prediction. I mean, it's not much of a prediction because that's just the four year cycle of crypto. Right. That's like saying, hey, we'll repeat this four year cycle. I think the boogeyman scenario is that we don't get the four year cycle this time, but we wait for like a macro reset and it, and it comes back a little later in the decade. Well, to me, it's like, what are your options in that world to build wealth, well, guess what? If you're looking 10 years out and you could potentially be wealthy in 10 years, isn't that worth building towards? Isn't that really fast in, in this, you know, the grand scheme of things? Like imagine if you were like a lawyer or a doctor or something and you had like student 
you know, loans and all this stuff, how long before you're actually feeling wealthy? Probably like 20 years, you know? So it's, it's not that long <laughs> if you really, really look at your life and say, hey, in 10 years, I could be wealthy. Um, and I think that that's the boogeyman scenario is um, it could happen a lot faster. I believe it will happen a lot faster. But understanding even if we have a slow decade and, you know, staying aggressively involved in the space, I think it's, I think it's still an amazing bet. Um, but yeah, that's the way I see it. Yeah, I mean, great insight. And that point of framing it, you know, like we all frame things from our own perspectives and from the perspectives of our peers, but there's people that don't have any exposure to the risky markets and assets that we have exposure to that are living normal lives. And if maybe the only way that they've felt the uh, current macro conditions is in like gasoline and food prices, if all of a sudden housing is impacted and, you know, more of their goods and services that have to, that they have to pay for either you know, go sky high in terms of price or just stay very high, that's when you'll see them experience the pain. So we have Tams on stage repping a doodle. Uh, Tams, it says that you have the innate ability to stay a step ahead, both artistically and creatively. Uh, so I'm very curious to hear if you have a question for Elliot or something to contribute to the conversation here. Tams, please take it away. Yeah, thanks for inviting me up. So I was talking with Ryan and then he mentioned something about PO space and then I listened to it a couple of days ago and I'm hooked ever since. And Thank you. From the, in the a.m. until the afternoon. Well, I'm in Miami. I work on as a creative, and I work with related group on most of their building, along with other developers in the area. But Miami hasn't been hit that hard, especially in the ultra luxury market, and people are still selling and buying, especially money coming in from Chicago and New York to Miami. That's number one. Number two, the brokers kind of feeling jittery. Because I talked to them and they're pivoting to this Airbnb model. They're pivoting to renting cars from this car sharing. They're pivoting a lot. But the people who is doing the ultra luxury never felt it. Somebody got an offer for a $6 million penthouse and where they bought it for 900 and they won't even sell it because they know that still new money is still coming in. They're just the perspective on the, on the real estate side on South Florida, especially. Well, th thank you for that perspective. Uh, Miami, obviously one of the kind of crypto cities in the United States. Uh, Elio, would you consider buying property in Miami? Is that something that would ever be on your radar? I mean, I, besides the fact that obviously uh, there's there's talk about Miami being underwater in the next few decades. <laughs> um, I, like, I'm not I'm not an expert in any of these things. Um, but no, I mean, look, I, I'm looking to buy property for my family um, at some point during this crisis. I'm hoping that the way to do this is to be mostly a cash buyer um, and wait for the prices to come down and then refinance once rates come down. And so you end up kind of, you know, chunking more of your assets into the house uh, at the lows, knowing that the interest rates will probably be like, you know, 59% and that you don't really want to pay that. And so, you know, if you can mostly find something you can pay for in cash, something sensible that's within the budget and then, you know, refinance afterwards. That's the way I feel like is, is the only play on the table for real estate. And there will be a lot of people doing that. Um, you know, when you say BlackRock was buying single family homes, well, guess what? At a certain point, they become forced sellers. Once they have like a, a critical mass of properties that are underwater, they need to lighten that burden. They can't just sit on them for decades. Um, most 
mostly institutional buyers become the biggest force sellers. We saw that in crypto with three arrows. We saw that in crypto uh, with with all of these liquidation cascades like Luna, like all these big, uh, you know, institutional buyers that were like, hey, and when they were buying, everyone was cheering, right? And when they started selling, everyone went, oh, oops. And uh, and that's what will happen, I feel like, with with single family homes, right, is because institutions have these macro sweeping, um, you know, uh, effects in both directions. And so um, as much as as much as we cheer for institutions to buy our bags, it's a, it's a double edged sword. And so um, that's what I think will happen is that once, you know, because we had this up only bubble, it became a, hey, let's buy up all the homes. Well, guess what? If, if the but when the bubble pops, there's usually risk management by the higher ups and, and that'll probably manifest in pretty low home prices. I mean, at least in LA where I'm from, homes are still way more expensive than they were at the beginning of the pandemic, which was not that many months ago. So, you know, consider that. Yeah. And the point you brought up is fantastic. People need to understand that institutions, just because they're institutions, you can't put them on a pedestal. They're not perfect. They obviously make mistakes. And like the fear at the, um, the three arrows capital situation is probably the most gnarly one that we've we've seen in recent memory. I mean, they were buying the top of Fidenzas, of art blocks, of every single NFT asset. Almost it seems like as a flex for like four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand dollars a pop. Just boom, 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 buying these NFT assets. It all corrected by basically ninety plus percent, if not literally ninety nine percent, and they just got completely wrecked. And that's after building up the fund from basically nothing to billions of dollars over a 10-year period. It's a it's a crazy thing to think about, but it totally can happen. Ben, you're patiently waiting with your, your hand raised. Something to add here or a different topic? Yeah, I was going to uh, comment on a, a couple of things there. So the, the first one was, uh, I think it was Tams, and, and forgive me if, if it was someone else, but about the um, South Florida, Miami market. That's actually where I was looking to, to buy first. And uh, the issue that we had there is so many people had moved down there in the last like year and a half that there was so little supply of houses available that you'd have to overpay just for anything decent. And the closer you got to Miami, um, it, it, it was just like there was really nothing available that that fit within a, a budget and a criteria that at least we were looking for. Um, so so that part of it was was really interesting. I. I you know, I had thought it would kind of be the opposite because that's how it was my whole life where, you know, I, I'm I'm in New York. So a lot of people I know have second homes in Florida and they're called snowbirds. So they'll be, you know, up up in the, the northeast during the, the nicer months and then they'll go down south during the winter. And right now what we actually saw is a lot of people just straight up migrated from the northeast to the southeast and, and didn't even um you know, keep their home. So they were just selling to get in there. So there was such little supply and I'm not sure about the rest of the, the country, of course, but th that was, that was a really, really interesting, um, case study to see. I, I talked with a, a bunch of mortgage people about it and, um, real estate people, and there was just like nothing really available for them to sell. And then the, the other thing about like institutional, um, buying is that the, the, I, I completely agree with, with, uh, Elliot about like there's there's gonna be a time that they do have to kind of you know um, offload their balance sheets a little bit just to to kind of compensate for all the buying they were doing but also what ha what what that did is turn this market into such a renter's market that 
a, a lot of people who were looking to buy and, and couldn't really afford all the price increases then went to go rent. And when there's such a low supply of available rent, those prices get jacked up as well. So when, when you're looking at you know rental prices compared to just a year or two ago around my area, they, they've gone up in some cases 50 to 60 percent. And then you have inflation. You know, they say the number's eight, but it's probably closer to 30. So when you're, you know, compounding these things, it, it just makes it so difficult for, you know, anyone that's on a fixed income to, to budget their lives. And so when, when we see the, you know, this situation being leveraged into people who, you know, can't really afford these increased prices, you know, there, there's a lot of pain, I think, to still come. And when people have to resort to just renting and they can't even afford that, you know, that's that's when I think the bubble starts to pop even further. So, yeah, great, great points there. Yeah. And, and Ben's kind of painting a picture there. Right. And so I want to throw to Elliot. And so, Elliot, let's say, you know, you said that you're going to you're trying to learn from the last cycle that you participated in the last sort of bubble bursting. You want to be patient. You're listening to really smart people. You're coming up with your own theses. You know, let's say everything does go the way that you know these smart people are saying that it goes and obviously you're you're a business owner you know you have a lot going on in web3 and outside of web3 but for Elliot the individual let's say everything dumps the way that you expect you've expressed that you want to buy property for you and your family I think a lot of people can uh, relate to that a lot of people uh, would understand how something like that would look but just from like a play-by-play perspective let's say we get this big dump let's say it's it, the, the absolute bottom how would you operate in that situation as an individual like what assets would you be looking to deploy capital into what would you be looking to avoid and what signals would you be looking for yeah so you know at this point just to be clear i've been talking a lot behind the scenes uh, with some smarter people who have much more active portfolios in these kinds of markets. Um, For me, I've been more passive in cash, uh, just trying to avoid pain, which to me is a a huge flex in this market if you you don't lose money. Um, Now, one of the things that just happened is sticking your money money in treasury bonds, right? The US treasury bonds, which are literally the least risky assets on the planet, which means the only reason you wouldn't get paid back is if there is no USA government, which in that event, we have much, much bigger problems. Like the last thing I'd be worried about in that world is the price of of any of our bags at that point. Um, But that asset is now paying you over the course of two years, a 9% return, um, which is extremely high. Um, And so you got to look at sort of like the cost of capital right now is if that keeps going higher, which it looks like it will, at a certain point, something's going to quote break, right? So that's the moment that I think that some pivot will come from the Fed. But you asked like what I'm what I'm my play by play is, is you know, hoard, hoard cash, be patient and understand that the biggest money here in any markets always has been in the waiting, not the buying and the selling. And it's just a game of outweighting your neighbor right now, because I just see so many people still itching. You see it in the comments, you see it in the community, you see it in the responses. Everybody wants to be the hero and call the pivot of the market. Everyone wants to be the one that says it's done and, and, and things have changed. And I still think we are overly animalistic in our in our sort of approach to these markets and so yeah so the play-by-play is to be more patient than my neighbor um to remain grounded and to effectively uh study the the gears of the macro economy and understand when they're going to allow for more risk to to come into the system which will be obvious the fed will make it obvious like 
the entire system will shift to risk and they might do it in a weird way. But if they start trying to support the bond market, that to me is a bat signal, right? That to me is my bat signal, right? Which is they need to make sure that you can't make life-changing money by just sticking your money in treasury bonds. Now, if the and, and that's because people aren't buying them because inflation's so high. They're like, well, I'm, I'm actually losing money in this, so I'm not going to buy this, um, even though the rates are high. And so if they start saying, well, actually, we're going to start buying our own bonds, that is when things things get very, very, very interesting for uh, for our bags again. So that's my play-by-play. I think that the the real estate market is clearly super sticky, wants to hold on to its prices, um, and it's not going to be able to. So I think, I think real estate's got to have a huge correction down. It'll probably take about two years plus. Uh, that's how real estate works. And then, you know, you'll be looking for a bottoming in real estate probably in like 2024. Um, that's what my sort of general mental map is, um, is to be buying some property in 2024 and to be waiting for Bitcoin to make its way sort of, yeah, I mean, I think we have another leg down. And and in the end, the easy thing to do is just to buy little bits each week over the course of years, right? DCA it, and then you're spreading out your risk. Because at some point, if the market fluctuates down or up dramatically, you'll have diversified, right? And so the point is, if you see this as a multi-year process and you plan for it, then you're going to be okay, most likely. So that's kind of my approach. It's the little old lady strategy. We're no longer in a euphoric bull run. This isn't like a three months to make life-changing money, which we were in that moment back in 2021. No one can deny that coins were going 30, 50, 100x. Like that was happening. And so in those in those times, it's better to be a little more risk on. In these times, it's better, it's much better to be patient. And, and the people who can figure that out and can manage to outweigh their neighbors, I think are going to be handsomely, handsomely rewarded. Yeah. I mean, in those times, you could have thrown money at the wall and it seemed like a 10x, like people weren't really interested in 10x. They were like, oh, I need 100x. You know, it just gets out of hand. Nick got rugged from his actual account. He's on our brand account. Nick, can you uh, can you hear me right now? No. Uh, gotta love Twitter. Nick, I'll send you a Google Meet. Can patch you in here for the last six minutes. We got Wappy on stage. Wappy uh, came from track. Oh, oh, Nick? Nick? Nope. No, I thought you spoke for a second, but can't hear you, buddy. Uh, Wapi comes from TradFi, got into DeFi in 2020. Uh, and Nick, just, just freely speak, speak over me. Uh, so we'll try to see if we can hear you, but we can't right now. Uh, Wapi did very well trading NFTs. Um, he's a trader. You know, he's an in and out guy. Uh, I always love hearing his perspective. Wapi, what's going on? Hey, so I would say to this conversation uh, that there's going to be proper entry points into things, but certain things haven't bottomed yet. And so like the car market is currently like falling apart at a faster rate than the uh, housing market. So maybe that's like a foreshadowing of how the housing market will go. Like cars, like automobiles? Yeah, specifically like dealers, because over the past two years, a lot of um, cars haven't gone on the same depreciation like line that they've been on in typical. A lot of them flatlined or some of them even started like appreciating in value just because of demand and uh, a lot of like funny financing that was going on. But there's not as much like regulation around financing automobiles is my understanding. And so because of the competition, you had dealers overpaying for cars like 
my understanding of the car market is like dealers will go to uh, auction and there's usually like a wholesale price and then there's a retail price. And usually the delta between those two is what like a dealer could expect to make on a car in a typical market. Dealers started bidding at like retail prices or above retail prices and lenders started giving them above market value for what the cars were because you had buyers who could come in and buy them. What's happened is like the buying has kind of fallen out because people have gotten sick of it or people are squeezed on money. So now you have dealers who are sitting on a bunch of inventory, but they don't buy those cars cash. They have them on like lines of credit. So now you have like lines of credit being stretched. They're paying interest on it. That interest I have to imagine is not fixed rate. It's probably adjustable. So they're getting squeezed as interest rates keep going up. So there's like an issue with the car market overall. And, you know, you have dealers kind of holding on to things because they don't want to take baths on what they bought overpaid for essentially. So that's like one thing that's going on. And I don't know if the housing market is there yet, but I think like housing would fall apart if um, the individual gets too stretched and can't afford payments on their mortgage or can't afford rental payments. That's when you might start to see like cracks in housing, but I don't know if you're there yet. I think the problem with markets overall right now is um, the US is expected to still raise interest rates. And when they do that, it's going to lead to a continued stronger dollar. And you're not going to see a huge rally in risk assets until the dollar starts to weaken. And so if the Fed starts to raise above like 4%, the US becomes like a much more investable um, country than like a lot of emerging market countries. Um, And especially a lot of the developed market countries, there's not many that are above us. There's a few that are still around us. But if you look at like Japan or Britain, the reason their currencies are taking such a hit is because you can go borrow their currency in a lower rate than us, swap it into dollars, deposit it into a dollar investment like a treasury, out earn the yield that you're paying on the um, domestic currency. So that sell pressure sends those currency down and sends dollar up. And until you see a reversal in that from like broader market participants, risk assets aren't going to take off. And that'll come when the Fed starts to lower interest rates, but we're not there yet. And you have like a long end flattening on um, rates right now, which means like people aren't bullish on like long-term economy. Um, so I think we're already in a recession, but people don't want to admit it in the media. And so if we're already in a recession, if the media is about to admit a real recession, we're probably like headed towards a technical depression. Um, And then I think the question you have to ask is like, how decoupled is crypto from the real economy? Because if it's decoupling, that's where there'll be um, price appreciation within crypto where you're not seeing price appreciation outside in traditional markets. Elliot, any thoughts on what Wapi said? Yeah, Elliot, anything to add? Yeah, the look, I don't like using words like depression because they're just so triggering. (laughs) Um, But the reality is, is that everything, everything is different and new, right? You know, it's never going to be like, (laughs) it's not going to be like the 1930s, right? Um, Because there's too many changes in society. Here's the thing, though. Um, The reality is, is that these are crazy times, they're historic times. And for investors, what you don't want to be doing is always just investing following the herd. These are opportunities to go counter to the herd, to do what other people aren't doing and to do what only a few are actually knowing to do uh, because people are scared. When there's fear, there's a ton, a ton of bad decision making. Um, And, you know, the bull market is full of fear, too. It's called FOMO. And FOMO is is fear of missing out, right? And so there's a ton of opportunities when there's a lot of fear. 
Um, and this is this is going to be one of those. That's just what I'll say here. And and I do believe that uh, the most important thing you can do is be patient, as you can say, as you uh, as you said we could be in a depression and housing hasn't come down at all. Like what, what does that even mean? You know, like there's dislocations, right? The market is full of illogical dislocations right now. And the more you study those, the more the obvious outcome is starts to show itself. And so study, uh, people say like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to lose money. I'm like, well, you don't have to, I've been saying this since the beginning of 2022. You do not have to risk money to pay attention. You're just spending time. You're in, you're investing in your education in yourself. And that's the biggest thing that I wish someone had screamed at me in 2018 was you don't need to be holding bags to be a fan or to be following. And, um, and if I had followed that strategy of just getting to safety and waiting and then studying and staying obsessed like I was instead of you know, losing money while being obsessed, you know, that's, that's to me, what I think is the, is the big unlock for people is to stay engaged and also manage risk. Like you can do both. You can do both. Fantastic summary. Yeah. Look, Oh, go yeah, ahead. Faded. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cause I think I can add some value to this. I haven't gone yet. And I think I can add some value to this conversation just for some reference. I'm in real estate and manage a pretty significant large portfolio. Um, I posted something to the chart over there. I'm looking at the new Association of Home Builders report that usually leads everything. And it came out last Tuesday. And if you look at it, it actually had the largest year-over-year decline in history. And it's actually declined 50%. And that's usually the leading indicator. So that's what I'm looking at. Um, just to push back on LEO trades, I agree that you know institutional buyers, the U.S. housing market's a $43 trillion market. Of that $18 million in debt. 17% of that is currently institutional buyers and institutional owners, and they usually trade OTC. So if they do want to liquidate their portfolio, it's probably going to go to other bigger hedge funds that won't hit the market or be traded off OTC. I also invest in a lot of commercial and stuff like that. So what I'm doing just personally, I'm in self-storage. I would strongly suggest people look at self-storage and mobile home parks because I'm actually ramping up my portfolio right now because in down markets, those are the best uh, usually the best uh, performing and yeah, with the rates when they go up to 8%, yeah, it's going to be a tough time. But I mean, I know you want to cut off the uh, show now, but I could certainly talk a lot more about housing and macro as well. Well, thank you for the contribution. Uh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, that's our show. Uh, we do the show Monday through Thursday. It's looking like these days, 12 p.m. Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Shout out to Elio Trades for co-hosting the show with us. Check out Imposters, the gaming ecosystem that's being built by Elliot. Uh, Elliot, they can check out the Imposters NFTs on OpenSea, right? Yeah, there's NFTs. We're going to have a massive new play event uh, coming up shortly. And we have a, a huge product coming out that's part of the same DAO. Um, uh, as I alluded to, it, it is a marketplace product. We're very, very grateful uh, for the community. And we're going to be building really hard through the bear. And, uh, and you know, we're excited to continue doing good work. Always, always amazing hosting the show. You guys are amazing. And, uh, and hopefully I can bring some of my perspective to this Twitter spaces uh, world. You, you a thousand percent do uh, appreciate that we're able to do a housing and general finance chat here unexpectedly. Gotta love it. I love talking about different topics. Check out our NFT, me and Nick's uh, you know, collection for our business, our media platform, uh, the Nifty Portal on OpenSea. We're going to have you burn it for a PFP in the near future. You can also uh, use it to buy uh, our inaugural Solana NFT Bodega Buddies by one of the thought leaders on Solana, Easy Eats Bodega. We'll catch you guys next time. Uh, have a good one. One. I'm trying to do the electronic music in honor of Elliot. I'm just, I'm not as adept, but we'll figure it out. We'll be back. Catch you guys next week. See ya. <laughs>